Happy Monday, listeners. Welcome to the Religious Studies Project. I'm Dave McConaughey, and with me today is... Brianne Fallon. How are you, Dave? I'm doing great. At least I'll be great if we can finally come to the end of this presidential election cycle, which feels frankly like it's been going on for four whole years. Um, hopefully it will not go for much longer. And we, everyone here in the US can take a big breath and a step back and then get back, right back to work. The work continues, right? That's right, Dave. But in this episode, we're going a little bit further afield than the US. We have an episode that you recorded with Christina Rocha on Global Flow's Local Contexts, Pentecostalism in Australia. Take it away. My name is Dave McConaughey, and I'm delighted to share the studio today with Professor Christina Rocha. Professor Rocha is a cultural anthropologist and director of the Religion and Society Research Cluster at the Western Sydney University. She's a former president of the Australian Association for the Study of Religion, she co-edits the Journal of Global Buddhism and the Religion in America series for Brill. She's been a visiting research fellow at the University of Utrecht, King's College and Queen Mary College, the SUNY Graduate Center, and the Max Planck Institute for Religious and Ethnic Diversity. Her publications have been translated into Japanese, Spanish, French, and Portuguese. Her latest book, John of God, The Globalization of Brazilian Faith Healing, won the Geertz Prize in the Anthropology of Religion at the American Anthropological Association. It's our delight to welcome her today. Welcome. Oh, hello, David. It's really wonderful to be here today chatting with you. We're really privileged to be able to continue the conversation that we began with your student, uh, Dr. Kathleen Openshaw, who we featured in an earlier episode about stasis and mobility and the anointing oil of the UKCG church. This opportunity for us to talk is really a way to continue the conversation about Pentecostal and charismatic communities in Australia that are global, and in particular tied to Brazil. Do you think you could explain a little bit about the connections and the relationship between these communities in Brazil and Australia, and perhaps how you came to study these transnational groups? Okay, I'll start by how I came to study them. I'm originally Brazilian, and 20-some years ago, I moved to Australia. Um, and um, when I moved, I realized that there were more and more young Brazilians moving to Australia in the beginning of the 21st century. And there were more and more Australians going to Brazil. So this is a connection that was really under the radar for many, many scholars. People were talking about movement, flows, you know, of globalization between North and South, the global North and the global South. But they were not talking really about um, the in this in the Southern Hemisphere, flows in the Southern Hemisphere, in between peripheral and semi-peripheral countries. Australia is part of the global north, but it's also a semi-peripheral um, country. It's not really a central metropolitan country. It's a country that has been colonized. So that's that's what I started um, hearing. People asking me, you're Brazilian, you must know John of God. Um, and I would say, who is John of God? They would say, well, he's the famous healer. And I would say, I'd never heard of him. And then um, they would say, well, you must not be Brazilian then because he's very famous. And that piqued my imagination. And the what, next what time. What an I accusation. Went, yes, <laughs> but you are not because he is, right? 
So yeah. it was so important to people, and people were traveling to central Brazil to see John of God. So the next time I went to Brazil, I booked a week at the healing center in central Brazil where he used to work. Um, in And um, I was astonished when I went there because it was literally a global village. So you had people from all over the world in a little village um, that nobody spoke Portuguese, but the cleaners and the cooks in the guest houses. Um, even the menus in the cafes were in English. You know, it had a feel of being in this alternative global village like the Ramsala, the, where the seat of the Tibetan government in exile is in northern India or um, any other alternative community. So that was really interesting. But at the same time, I could see that there were more and more international students from Brazil coming to Australia to study in Australia. And they were going, uh, they were establishing their own churches, but also going to this big mega church, Australian mega church called Hillsong. So that's how I started um, this research, looking at the global flows and the, and the transnational connections between Brazil and Australia. What I could say is that what I found out, well, first of all, you know, when we talk about mobility, we are not talking only about mobility of people. Of course, migrants, spiritual tourists. So you would say Brazilian migrants in Australia and spiritual tourists going to Brazil, Australian spiritual tourists going to see John of God. You have religious leaders, pastors moving around, and you have these international students. So mobility of people is very important. But as Kathleen has, has um, demonstrated in her work with the oil, also religious artifacts, um, things, moving things, sacred objects are very important for the connection between two cultures. Um, and also old and digital new media. Social media is important. You can be stuck in one place, but really connected to the world. Your, your world opens up, your mind opens up when you are. Um, in the beginning, it was about radio, newspapers, uh, people traveling, bringing photos, talking about places, but also now it's social media. But I think what is really important and not many people talk about is the work of imagination, how you imagine another world out there, what kinds of images come to you and how you portray them in your imagination, what kinds of emotion you attach to that. You look up at a picture of, I don't know, Bali or Tahiti, and what kinds of things come to your mind and your body. So it's the work of imagination that prompts mobility. And this work of imagination is historically constructed, right? There is a global power geometry, as Doreen, the geographer Doreen Massey talks about, in which the flows from the global north are much more powerful than the flows from the global south. What comes from the global north um, are more powerful and are constructed differently. So for the South, for the global South, what comes, you know, from Brazil, what's coming from 
America, from Europe, and from Australia carries with with it um, power, um, excitement, modernity, flows of modernity there, and and a desire for these people to be cosmopolitan, to adopt these flows so that they are cosmopolitan. Now, on the other hand, the for people in the global north, how you imagine the global south um, also prompts their mobility. So how they imagined um, the global south as deeply spiritual, where people lead authentic, pristine lives, we could say. So, so what, I, what I found out is that Australians have moved and people from all over the world, Americans and, you know, going to see John of God, they are moved by this st- sense of nostalgia, I would say, for a pre-industrial world. So, and this imaginary, of course, is reinforced by the objects, the sacred objects moving around, the crystals that John of God sells, the, the books um, about him, uh, the movies about his healing uh, methods, um, all these reinforce this this imaginary of Brazil. So you can see that these different imaginaries are diametrically opposite, right? But they are really correlated. They fit with each other. So Brazilians imagine Australia as a first world country. So a place that is perfect, that um, the streets are clean, uh, people are not corrupt as they are in Brazil. The public transport works well. There are no class divisions because class is so important in Brazil. So all good things. So in a way, the John of God Center is sort of a Shangri-La place as much as Australia becomes this mythical Shangri-La for Brazilians. Um, right. I re- yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm really, I'm really intrigued for for our audience to really think about how how powerful that movement of people is. That that folks that are in Brazil are thinking about Australia, and then they're acting on them by sending their children to school. Uh, that they're mm-hmm. that are visiting Australia for vacations, and that likewise Australians see the spiritual promise of this, and that those you you place them in contrast. Uh, as a push and a pull um, a- across uh, time and space in in for these communities, can can you say a little bit a little bit more about the way that perhaps outside of these particular communities that Australians and Brazilians see see those connections? Do, do all Australians have that kind of imaginary? Is there a, a cultural sense about? Um, the relationship between Australia and Brazil that that moves beyond John of God or um, Hillsong, which I'm sure we'll talk about in a little bit? Well, um, things change quite a lot. So when I started doing my research, Brazil was becoming an emerging um, power in the world, of course, never as the metropolitan powers, but was there was this excitement about Brazil. Um, and Brazil has this, um, I think this mystique of you know Rio beaches, the carnival, and the Amazon, and all these things. So I think for the larger population in the cities, 
the idea of Brazil was an exciting place to um, travel to. Um, a lot of young people started, you know, some young people started learning capoeira, which is this martial arts from Brazil, and wanted to go there. That's another thing that I, I wrote about, wanted to go to Brazil to train with the masters of capoeira. Um, some um, started, young people started dating Brazilians who were in Australia, meeting them at the beaches in Sydney and and other places, and then visit Brazil for, you know, to meet the family, or just going, instead of going to England, as they used to do in their gap year, that's the year after high school that many Australians used to take off before going to university to see the world. Uh, traditionally, they would go to England uh, because of the colonial connections. But in the past 20 years, they started going to Brazil. So there is there, there is a bit of movement. There has been a bit of movement between the two countries um, outside the religious communities. So the religious uh, bit is, uh, is one more thing. But, you know, uh, Brazilians would come to Australia as tourists, as you mentioned, but also as international students to study English and to, to travel. So the idea, it's, a, it's very much a middle-class movement that they study and then they have enough money to go around Australia, to go to New Zealand. So going to America, it's, you know, it's what everybody does. But um, in the 21st century, this, I guess, Australia was the new frontier as much as um um, New Zealand and um, and from Australia they would go to Bali, go surfing uh, around the Pacific, Thailand, all these places that were very much very far away for Brazilians. I, I've heard you speak a, a, about this, or at least write about this in your work as tropicalization. Should should listeners be imagining that as a as a a parallel to Orientalism in the sense that you were using Shangri La as a as a comparable example that. Um, perhaps uh, Bali and Tahiti and these kinds of places are are comparable in that sense. I think so. I think so. So you you homogenize a whole country or a whole region as you do in Orientalism, Orientalization. Uh, you put them as a, you know all as pre modern, uh, and that they are deeply either corrupt or they're deeply spiritual and they go hand in hand as well. Uh, so they're not touched by the flows of modernity. And of course, this is a huge fallacy because even in the, in the developed world, in the global North, you have pockets of poverty and so much more so in, you know, in your country now in the past years, isn't it? There is a lot of poverty. There's a lot of poverty yeah. in Australia too, you know, in, this, in Central Australia um, mostly. But in the Global South, you also have a middle class that are in big cities and have lives very similar to the lives of people, middle class people in big cities in the Global North, right? They have access to the technology. Um, and yes, very much leading lives that are similar. So you have these pockets and we can't homogenize a whole region. So tropicalization would be a fitting concept um, to, to how 
the ways in which the media portrays um, the global south, but also in Brazil and the tropics and c- Central and Latin America, as much as uh, travelers, um, what they are looking for in you know in in the in the global south. For for those middle class, um, potentially those middle class Brazilians that find themselves as migrants. Uh, in Australia, one of the places that your research directs us to is the, the activities of the Hillsong uh, community and the way in which this strongly resembles, to, to my eyes at least, the kind of seekerism of evangelicalism in the United States in the megachurch kind of um, construction. It, for you, how how does your research on Hillsong help you explain um, what classes role is for Brazilians who find themselves in Australia joining an Australian born um, charismatic community. Yeah. So what I found is that more and more Pentecostals are becoming middle-class and this is, you know, more a generalization, but you can see that very much in Australia. So, um, they are more and more trying to get educated, establishing colleges for their for their pastors, for training their pastors, um, going into university. So, what was a very working class phenomenon in Australia is becoming it's always aspirational, but it's becoming more middle class. Now, when middle class Brazilians come here. So there are two, there have been two waves of migration or Brazilian migration to Australia. One in the seventies of working class uh, Brazilian migrants. um, And they established their own Pentecostal evangelical churches, right? Um, These, these people don't necessarily go to Hillsong. Their kids do. So Hillsong is a mega church, just like American mega churches, very similar. Um, the, the, the services are more like concerts, more like clubbing. Um, probably many people know that you have a big band, big screens. It's a short service compared to services in Brazil. It's an hour and a half. Um, there's a lot of entertainment, music, worship music is very important. Hillsong became famous because of its band. Um, and so for the new wave of Brazilians coming here who are coming from the big cities in Brazil and they are middle-class students, Hillsong is a very fitting um, church because it's very different from Pentecostalism in Brazil. One of the things I am arguing in my articles and in the book that I'm writing is that they, um, these, these young Brazilians desire to socially distinct, um, distinct themselves from the Pentecostalism of the poor in Brazil. So in Brazil, Pentecostalism is associated with the poor, with corruption, with now Bolsonaro because the far right um, and Pentecostals, not all, but the majority of Pentecostal churches have supported Bolsonaro in the elections. So this in the media um, is seen, you know, it's, it's there is a lot of stigma in being Pentecostal. But then there is this church that is really cool, right? That has 
incredible production values that is really middle class and really open to everyone. It's not a judgmental church. Anybody can come to Hillsong and they will not look down on you if you have a, you know, if you're wearing a mini skirt or, or whatever it is. If you have tattoos, uh, piercing, everyone is welcome. Come as you are is their motto. So they come in and they finally find that they can be young. They can participate in youth culture with music, with tattoos, with whatever. And, um, and it's, it's sophisticated. It's, it's a beautiful church. They have this thing about excellence. Everything is done perfectly and uh, meticulously so that everything is really beautiful and excellent, which is very different from the, what we see in the culture in Brazil. So they find a place to be and to be proud of their Pentecostalism, their Pentecostal choice at Hillsong. So they don't feel um, diminished or inferior or, you know, um, the stigma anymore. So I, does I that help you? It, it does. It, clarify? It, it, it sounds so much like the kind of long history in the United States through the 70s and the 80s and into the 90s of evangelical communities in the United States and less so Pentecostals until you get into kind of more of the nineties and the two thousands, but these early evangelical communities experimenting with mega churches as community centers, they're full service churches. You come to them mm-hmm. to get coffee. You come to them to shop. You come to them to find a date. You come to them for, to, to go out with the date and, and have your date at the, <laughs> at the church. Exactly. And, and, and it sounds exactly like what I've read about, um, in the same period, but in Australia. So, so the differences that I'm hearing are really interesting that this is a, is a, a community that, that takes advantage of the familiarity of some of the theology of, of what's going on. So prosperity driven kind of focus and an emphasis on, on signs and wonders, but the, the mode of their worship, the mode of the performance seems so evangelical in character to me uh, in its mega churchness. Is that, is that a fair comparison? Oh yeah. Yeah. I think it's, it's very much so. It's a mega church. So mega churches have this, this um, idea that they have to be, they have to be relatable, right? They have to be open to the world. So Hillsong is one of these, what, um, surgeon has called it a seeker church, a seeker friendly church, and so they they gap they they establish the bridge between um, the church and a, a Christian way of life and a secular way of life. So they 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 build this path so that people can come in. Uh, one of the things that Brazilians were pretty shocked in the beginning is that outside in the foyer, for example, you you do have the cafe and you have the shop, you know, and but you also the music that plays. The odd, one day I was there and it was Kate Perry playing, you know. The, <laughs> so I asked, but what is this? And they go, oh, no, it's fine. So it's the idea that you don't frighten people and you don't judge people. Let them feel that it's just the same as in their everyday lives and so that they can come in and they will feel that they belong. 
even the architecture of these churches, as you know, they're more like corporate buildings, right? They are. So it's the place you work is very similar to the to the church itself. You don't find crosses, many crosses anywhere. Um, it's all very beautifully, you know, you know, full of plants and and glass and steel. Um, and it's in, uh, an incredible place that uh, Hillsong has the, the headquarters. But of course, outside um, Australia. They um, establish branches or campuses in global cities, smack bang in the middle of global cities. So in London, it's they hire the Dominion Theatre in the evening, in the on Sunday, uh, and it's right there on Oxford Street, Tottenham Court mm. Road, and Oxford Street. So it's really in the centre. In Paris, the same. In New York, um, the same. So and in São Paulo, um, they established a branch in two thousand and sixteen. And it's it's a it was a nightclub, so they hire the venues on Sunday because nothing's really happening on a Sunday, and they have their services there. So it's the place that these kids go, you know, on a on a weeknight to go dancing and go clubbing, and they can go to the church on Sunday. So you see that uh, overlapping and integration of of um, the secular world. The blurring of the borders of the secular and the um, religious worlds. I imagine that that makes them quite successful, uh, as many of the megachurches in in the U.S. have been. Uh, w- one of the challenges that in the U.S. that we know that we're facing right now is the the rise of the religious nuns n o n e s. I saw mm-hmm. a, a tweet today from an American sociologist that says that the latest. Um, polling data that's out about them is that they are potentially 34% now of America uh, is no longer identifying with a religious affiliation. And so that when you ask them whether they're Christian and, or uh, what kind of Christian they are, or if there's some other uh, religion, they're now answering none on all of that. And so among youth, however, in the U S it's much higher than 34%. Is, is Hillsong among the Brazilian youths that are there? Are they bucking the trend uh, that we're seeing in, in the U.S. about such things where the youth are, are not coming <laughs> to, the, to the churches like they used to? Well, you can see this one, you can see this double movement. I don't think that one thing, you know, negates the other. Here too, you know, the largest single group is um, 30%. They are nuns, right? Mm-hmm. So um, it has increased quite a lot. And in Brazil also, you know, I think it's 8%. That was 10 years ago, the la- last census, 10 years ago. They're going to have a census um, next year. Um, so, but at the same time, Hillsong is trying to attract, and it does. It, they do attract a lot of young people. Uh, we know also that these nuns are not necessarily n- not spiritual, right? So Correct, the idea yeah. that, so they could, you know, dabble in, um, go a little bit to the church because these mega churches are open. So you don't have to get involved. They are all encompassing churches. As you said, you, it's a, what do we call a total social facts that you go, you can go on a Monday, you have classes about leadership and business and, um, youth youth meetings and band, you know, practice, and you go skating 
skateboarding in the car park, as I see it years old. <laughs> You know, the kids are safe there. The parents feel that the kids are safe. And I've been doing research with African um, Australians going to Hillsong now. And one of the things they say is that, oh, you know, I was Anglican in Kenya. My wife was Catholic, but we came here and the kids really want to go to Hillsong. And, you know, it's, it's a wonderful place. We go as a family. So it's a place we can go as a family. Uh but also they have business groups so I can meet people. So these people are older than the Brazilians. So they meet at the business group and then they find jobs. And, and so the church is open to that. And what Hillsong does really well is that they have community groups. So you have the Brazilian group within Hillsong in each campus. You have the um, African um, Australian group so you have a leader of the group and then they have connect groups that they meet at people's houses. So it becomes a community and that's very important. And then they have the multicultural evening or services once a year. And then they have food, you know, that the communities uh, cook and sell for fundraising. They have the services with the music from the community. They lead the service. So it's very exciting and very open. And I interviewed the um, many African uh, Australians saying, and they said they had never felt racism, even though they feel race racism all around them in Australia, not in the church. They were accepted in the church. Hmm. What I would like to say, of course, is that they have, you know, the Brazilians and the Africans have their own churches, own Brazilian churches, and these churches are even more um, directed at the diaspora in the sense that they cater for their needs. Um, the services are in their own language. They do have, again, food. You know, they, they have fundraisings with their own food. Um, they support each other, finding jobs. Um, the pastors have been here longer, the Brazilian pastors, so they can help them, you know, write a CV. Um, learn about the rules of the country, how you pay your taxes, how you do things in your own language. So they they are very much catered to the diaspora. And what I found is that many Brazilians, they arrive here and they want to go to Hillsong because they will learn English. They will meet Australians, which is very hard, you know, local Australians, very hard to do in their own um, everyday lives. They feel that there's a way of integrating themselves and learning more about the country, but they get, you know, tired because it's the language issue. It's it's all new, so they also love going to um, this church that I was doing research in. So they have one pastor told me it was more of a trampoline phenomenon that they go to Houston one Sunday, they come to our church the next Sunday, and they go back and forth, back and forth, you know, until. Um, they decide where they're going to go, but he could go for years with this. So it's very hard for the for the Brazilian pastors to be able to plan to have a to have really a community, a congregation there that they can count on. As we as we come to the end of our our time today, I've, I I want to end on a, a kind of a methodological note. I've noted a couple of times when you said that you your information comes from interviewing or from um, direct uh, field work. 
uh, at these sites. Can you speak a little bit as an anthropologist about why ethnography and and fieldwork is the right way uh, for you to figure out what's going on in these communities and and um, to explain what kinds of things are valuable to them? Why why is that the method that seems most appropriate here? Um, I think it's the it's the way of hearing their voices, and you know, humans are very logical. Uh, they can be very emotional and all this, but they are very logical as well. So if you dismiss any religious group or any group and say, "Oh, you know, they're lunatics, they're mad, and why would they do that?" You don't. You're not paying attention. So the ways in which you can be with them and listen to them, but also have the experience in your body. So it's not only ethnography, it's not about interviewing people. You interview people and mostly, as in any conversation, you meet somebody new, this person comes from the university, you don't have a university degree or you are at the university, but you feel like you want to please this person, to impress this person, right? So interviewing is very much about um, what you know, how you, you people react to you as as a, a social persona, you know, like being a university professor and all this. Now, when you are with people in, on a more daily basis, people start relaxing and being themselves. And you start, you know, in there are chats and silences and things people say when they are relaxed that you don't get in interviews. But you also, as an ethnographer, you live the things that people are living in your own body. So you spend, you know, an hour and a half in the service, in the dark, with the lights going and the music going, and you understand what kinds of um, oral experiences, physical, visual experiences Mm. you have. So you learn with your body. And I think that's very important. So that these two things, finding out the logic of of this commitment to these churches or these spiritual movements, but also learning in your own body how, what people feel. So it's not only that you learn rationally, but you learn with the body. And, and I think, you know, this is very important and gives me an edge uh, on on, on how to, to report and being very respectful of these people and how you report these, um, their, their um, logic. Well, I'm so grateful for your time today, Dr. Rocha. It's been a pleasure to speak with you, and I know that we are going to have a great time sharing this interview with all of our listeners as the second piece in our um, look at Pentecostal and charismatic communities and transnational Uh, charismatic communities in Australia. Thank you so much for joining me today. Oh, it's been wonderful. I really enjoyed it. And I hope, uh, um, yeah, it helps start a conversation or continue a conversation on, on transnational movement, transnational mobility and religion. Thank you. Thank you. I really loved in that episode, Dave, how you and Christina got into a conversation about the idea of mega churches as full service centers. And 
you spoke about this idea of these centres being places where adherents could get a coffee, find a date, go out with a date. Then Christina expanded upon that and spoke about the notion of business groups and children being able to skateboard in the car park. And I just thought I would provide a little bit of a small anecdote in relation to this. I did not grow up in Sydney, but I, I live in Sydney now. And it was news to me that there is a great impact upon the local real estate market in relation to the placement of full service mega churches such as these. So in Sydney, we have an area that is colloquially known as the Bible Belt. It's out in the Hills District in Sydney. And not only is it known as the Bible Belt because of its great number of churches and high adherence levels, particularly to Protestant Christianity, but that is where one of the major Hillsong churches is located in Sydney. And you'll find that if you're driving through the Bible Belt and houses are for sale, you'll see on their big billboards out the front, you know, five minutes walk to Hillsong, 10 minutes walk to Hillsong, just down the road from Hillsong. And that will dramatically increase the uh, the cost of that house because then your whole life, your whole existence really is connected to that full service centre. So I just thought that was an interesting little anecdote about the way that these these churches can have a broader impact beyond just their local community. That's so fabulous. I had, I had no idea uh, about Australia's Bible, but thank you for sharing that. Well, it's just in Sydney. Just in Sydney, <laughs> not, in, not, not across Australia, but um, yeah, just in Sydney here. I'm not sure about other major cities. If, if we have other Australian listeners who know of Bible belts in their, in their cities or in other cities around the world, do let us know on Twitter and on Facebook. Yeah, we'd love to hear about it. I will always learn about a new megachurch. Sign, sign me up. Ne- next time, though, not so much megachurches. <laughs> next time, we have a really interesting interview that uh, Sydney Castillo recorded uh, at a recent conference before COVID, uh, when we were all still able to go to conferences. Uh, he was speaking with Karsten Wilkie, and the episode is entitled Politics, Kabbalah, and Beyond, Jewish Studies and the Study of Religion. We're really looking forward to it. And until then, all that's left to say is thanks for listening. listening.